Greetings and a warm welcome back to Intersections. Today is going to be very special because, uh, again, the spirit of Intersections is to allow us to draw from diverse paths and disciplines as a way to get to understand our own selves at our core, understand humanity and life at its core. And when we dissolve these boundaries across various disciplines, then I think we just see truth in a much more richer and deeper light. And today, it is my honor and privilege to bring to us someone, Noah, who is incredibly accomplished from the discipline of music. One that, uh, as a discipline, that I have not um, actively, you know, had the privilege or pleasure to pursue. One that I am in great awe of and also been deeply fascinated by, as I'm sure are all of you. Some of you might be musicians yourself. Some might be amateur musicians. But all of us, at heart, are at least lovers of music. And so from that world, I bring to you a very special force, Noah Kageyama, who is today a performance psychologist and coach in this area. So just a few words on Noah before I invite him to join us live. Noah started to play the violin when he was just two years old. He spent the next 20 years training and playing as a violinist, and he learned and played with some of the most acclaimed musicians all over the world. Along the way, he got himself a degree in psychology from Oberlin, as well as a master's in music from Juilliard, uh, one of the preeminent schools in the world of music. This is Juilliard. And while he was there, something interesting started to stir within him, which led him to ultimately get also a master's and a PhD in counseling psychology from Indiana. What stirred within him and what made him ultimately leave the actual practice of music to go more into the psychology of musical performance is something that, of course, we want to talk to him live. And since then he has been a performance coach at the New World Symphony. He has also been a faculty at the Juilliard School and has taught at you know premier institutes uh, around around the country. He has been a active podcaster and his blog on music, which is so beautifully titled "The Bulletproof Musician," has a very active following as well from the world of music. He has been doing online coaching and offering guidance to performance artists and musicians for helping them build skills, for managing things like anxiety and building confidence and performing optimally under high stress, high performance kind of conditions. Uh, his work has been featured in a number of storied media. And on that note, let me just, um, yeah, welcome welcome you in to our midst. Uh, Noah, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Great pleasure, great joy. Tell me, listen, um, I want to get really more into your story in just, uh, in just a minute or so. But before we do that, you come from a discipline that while many of us may not have had the courage or the skill to, you know, kind of like travel through ourselves, we all have experienced and appreciated and valued it so much as consumers of music. And today in the coronavirus age, as I go around New York and sometimes I just stumble into beautiful sounds being played out there in the fresh air by a jazz band or an opera singer, I also, on the one hand, feel so uplifted, but I also feel, feel the pain knowing that um, coronavirus has struck like a, I think, a particularly tough impact, right, on, on the musician community. And I just was curious to see how, how is the community doing? Uh, in today's time? Not great, I think. I mean, on multiple levels, I mean, not just financially in terms of uh, one's livelihood being affected and 
quite such a dramatic way, but also just missing one's colleagues and friends. And, and those of you who have played an instrument in the past, you know, there are a lot of frustrations that come from having to practice every day and keep your skills up and so forth. But that all kind of gets forgotten. It goes away as soon as you start playing with a friend or playing with a pianist or playing with a group of people in a trio or a quartet or even a large ensemble. There's just something about being able to sort of a cliche phrase, but make music with other people that it just becomes so much more than the individual parts. And it just feels amazing. It's, it's like being part of any team sport, I imagine, as well, when everything's coming together and everyone's clicking and everyone's aligned and everyone's playing their roles. And this whole thing is just kind of moving along, effective, beautiful way. There's something about that feeling that's hard to replace. And so I think even from that level, it's, I think, been difficult and frustrating for a lot of musicians to not be able to do the thing that that they've been doing their whole lives. Yeah, my heart goes out to to that community since they have done so much for us as humanity. And uh, and yet, you know, there is this news about the two vaccines that has come recently and which give us hope. And uh, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to having things come back to a place where musicians can continue to, you know, be, be at their full potential. Noah, you know, you were a musician for a long period of time. And then you decided to step back and go more, if you want to call it backstage than front stage. What led to that? It's one of those interesting things where it's a lot easier to see your path and to see what the story is looking backwards at it, even though when you look backwards at it, you see that there were little signs all along, perhaps, that were leading you in this other direction that you never could have imagined or foreseen for yourself. So, I mean, my story is that I started playing the violin, like you said, when I was two. And so when you're two years old, I don't think you have much of a life plan uh, in mind or don't really know who it is that you are or who you're going to become or what your interests are really. You just kind of do whatever's in front of you in that moment. And so that's how I started. And I never really questioned the path. I just continued on that path and it just kept going and going. And one thing leads to another as they usually do. And so I found myself really kind of in the preparatory stages of being a musician, you know, from youth orchestra and chamber music to private theory lessons and teachers. At one point, I had four different teachers all at the same time in four different, well, three different cities and two different states and driving to Chicago from Central Ohio on the weekend and flying to New York on the weekend for pre-college at Juilliard. And so it just never seemed like something that I wouldn't do. And then I went to college and the whole story of how I ended up with a psych degree in college is sort of a whole other tangent. But basically, it was maybe one first clue that I didn't fully identify with the life of a musician uh, or what that would look like. And so then I went to Juilliard. And, and this is really where I started to have to think about making a decision about my life in front of me. Because, you know, I saw that I couldn't stay in school forever at that point. And it was the first time I was really immersed in the music world. And uh, so one of the formative kind of moments or decision points, I think, was uh, I was in this quartet of friends and we would just do gigs around town. And I think one day we were eating after a gig that we had done and just joking about what we'd do if we won the lottery, because I think the lottery was high at the time and we contemplated getting tickets at the diner or the, at the, the deli next door. And, and uh, you know, once we all kind of got past the initial spending spree of Ferraris and Soho lofts and a strad for each of us. Uh, you know, we still had money left over, obviously. And so we were talking about what we'd do with that. And for me, the answer was really obvious. I would quit playing. And I didn't know what I would do, but I knew that I wouldn't continue to, to play the violin. And 
the other three in the quartet, that was the first furthest thing from their mind. Like they would all continue to to be musicians, but just amplified in various ways, whether it's starting this organization or recording label or summer festivals or all these other projects that they had in mind. And that just sort of surprised me because I, I thought that everybody would do what I did. It's like, if you had the chance to not be a musician anymore, you would do something else. And so that was the first moment where I realized maybe, maybe I ought to, to make a more mindful choice about what it is that my life would look like in the coming years. And so, yeah, so I started thinking about it a little bit more and was talking to my girlfriend who is now my wife. And she was always a big part of my life then. And it was helpful to hear from her that, yeah like maybe that's not a normal thing for a musician to be thinking and you certainly don't have to be a musician no one ever said that you did and and that was it sounds obvious maybe from the outside but you know for someone who had spent two decades training pretty single-mindedly and giving up lots of things and with the support of family and so forth to do one very specific thing and then to not do that that was not necessarily as easy a decision as as it might in hindsight have seemed to be. And even though I say to people that it was actually a relatively easy or straightforward decision for me, it still it still was a process of starting to accept this new version of myself that I was maybe going to entertain becoming. So long story short, after I finished up at Juilliard, I, I knew that being a musician just didn't resonate with me on some level, even though I loved it and I wouldn't change anything if I could go back and change anything. I would I would still do everything that I did. And I'm still extremely grateful for all the opportunities and experiences I had doing that. And on many levels, I obviously still love music and find it extremely meaningful. But there was something about the life of being a musician that didn't resonate with whoever I was starting to become or growing into. And so yeah, so when I finished at Juilliard, I was excited to explore psychology, even though I didn't know what that would look like. And yeah, so I went to Indiana and started uh, on the path to becoming a psychologist. Do you feel um, complete and fulfilled now? Do you feel like um, after that big pivot, that where you've arrived at now, at that intersection between music and, and psychology, that this is kind of like who you were meant to, to be? Yeah, well, I think I had never really identified with being a musician if I look back at it. Like if, if someone said, what do you do? Or asked me about myself, I'd never... I don't think said that I was a violinist. I would always say something like, oh, I play the violin. But you know what I mean? Like there's that distance there. Like I never quite felt that I was a musician or a violinist. I just did this thing. And so now, I mean, I still don't exactly know who I am, I suppose. I'm still trying to figure it out. But but yes, this certainly does feel more me for what it's worth. And I I feel like I'm more myself, whatever that is, than I was when I was playing the violin only. How cool. And, you know, I, I'm going to come back and reflect a little bit on the journey you just shared with us. But before I do that, one more question on this for you. When you decided to pursue this path and with the kind of positions that you've taken on since then and the role that you played in the uh, in the community of, of music, was this a tried and tested path? Was this a very established kind of, you know, thing uh, or... Um, or, or, or were there new kind of like frontiers for you to also explore and establish? Yeah, so the short answer is this is not a thing, right? So, I mean, when I finished at Juilliard, um, at least I knew what a musician's work life would look like, presumably, right? Like you teach or you have a university position or you play in an orchestra or an ensemble. Like it was a little bit clear what that would look like. This I wasn't quite sure about. I just figured, you know, I could stay in school for at least another four to six plus years longer, and maybe I'll figure it out by then. And so I just sort of tried to delay the inevitable figuring out what my professional life would look like. And and even when I finished, it wasn't very clear to me. I mean, what was useful for me in, 
and invaluable was having a model of sorts or mentor. So Don Green is the name of a, a performance coach who worked with Olympic athletes for many years and continues to work with world-class athletes and musicians. But he was teaching this performance psychology class at Juilliard when I got there. And I saw him doing something along the lines of what I thought would be pretty interesting to be able to do, to kind of bounce around from different organizations and work with athletes and musicians and clients and business folks and, and, and kind of be a consultant on both individual and organizational levels. And I didn't know that that was a thing that one could do, but it was around the time, you know, the early 2000s, late 90s, where that was starting to become something that more people were doing. And so I just kind of took it on faith that, okay, this fellow is doing this. I'm just going to cross my fingers, go down this path and hope that maybe that's possible for me as well. And so I think if I didn't have that that model of someone that I knew doing this, it would have been a little harder for me to give myself permission to explore that path. But but certainly, yes, it's it's not something that was common back then. I think it's certainly becoming much more common nowadays for this to be the sort of thing that people do. But uh, but yeah, it was it was invaluable to have a model. Yeah, thank you for everything you've taken us through so far. We're going to pivot soon into talking about what you have learned about the psychology of high performance in music and what we can draw from it for our careers and lives as well. Before we get there, though, just to kind of like complete this this piece out. First of all, I think in your story, Noah, already for our audience, there are so many valuable lessons for all of us to take about the discovery of our true selves and the expression of that in all that we do. You talked about a pivotal moment, a conversation that happened between a friend of yours and you, and how it was just uh, batting around some ideas and thoughts and a thought experiment about the lottery. You know, unexpectedly, that gift of insight and inner stirring kind of fell into your lap that day. Paying attention to those moments, right? Like as you paid attention to it, responding to it, engaging with it. You also talked about how it was a process. It wasn't like a one flash of insight and you were just there. I'm sure it must have taken a lot of soul searching. So it's a process, but in that process are these little gifts, you know, these little little moments, you know, where so much more insight can come to us if we pay attention to them. I think that is beautiful. The idea that uh, your path may not be the well-trodden path of whatever mainstream society is doing, <laughs> you know, that's what they're doing. But if you pay attention, not just to what you're doing on the outside, but what you're feeling on the inside, right? I see a lot of that happening in that moment where all of them wanted to be musicians, whereas in your case, you felt like if I had all the money in the world, I could probably want to go in another direction. Being able, Having that courage as you did, uh, having then those guides or role models, you know, along the way as well. And ultimately, yeah, blazing the trail that is right for who you are. Our um, viewer and friend, Anuradha, you know, she's saying so beautifully when you talked about like, this was more me. You know, that, that expresses it so well. What a beautiful way of uh, recognizing one own, one's own individuality, right, uh, in that moment. I also relate very well to your story because um, two reasons. Uh, one very personal, which is I had to make a couple of major pivots like this. One, when I was just deeply in love with mathematics, and yet I saw like a dead end for me in terms of how there was more I wanted to do with life and the world than I felt I was going to be able to achieve through the agency of mathematics. And yet I was madly in love with that discipline and I invested a lot in that discipline. So being able to step back from things you've invested a lot in, when you talked about that, that for 20 years I was doing this and the hard call I had to make to pull back, I really, really appreciate that. And that's something I could, I could relate to very well there. Uh, the other thing that I found, you know, for me very, very inspiring is that um, you have sought to make a point that to be really satisfied and ultimately rewarded and ex excellent at your craft of music, you need more than just to be excellent at the technology of playing music. 
there is something else called the human psychology part of it that you also got to bring into focus. And I think if that's something that we recognize in all professions and in all roles, whether we're trying to be a chef or a parent or a lawyer or a doctor or an entrepreneur, the world would be so much better off. You had your um, dealings with people beyond the world of music as well. Any thoughts and reactions to the importance of the psychology element behind everything that we pursue? I don't remember who said this. Well, there's that classic uh, Yogi Berra quote, something about how, you know, half of baseball is 90% mental or, or something like that, or 90% of baseball is half One of those, and I don't know if I'm understanding the question correctly, to be honest, but I think we tend to, as musicians, when I was growing up, I was focused, I like how you put it, the technology of playing music or technology of playing the instrument, the violin. I was obsessed with that part of it. And didn't really realize consciously at least that there was a huge mental aspect of the music making process as well. And, you know, from not just the performance part of things, but even just, you know, resilience and perseverance and building confidence. I mean, there's a whole aspect of it that if we want to go beyond the practice room and actually be able to demonstrate our craft in front of an audience, that's where the mental side of things comes into play. And I largely neglected that just because it's easy to get obsessive and single-mindedly focused just on the technology part of the craft and and completely forget about having to perform that and bring that art out into the world at some point. So Noah, let's focus on that maybe then for the next few minutes. When you think about the, the mental part of uh, your sport, which is, which is music, what have you discovered as to like the key building blocks of what a aspiring you know musician needs to be really attending to and, and developing themselves. So there's a, a Olympic diving coach um, named Jeff Huber who often told his athletes that he had two goals for them. One goal was to help them learn how to dive better. The other goal was to help them learn how to dive better in competition. And that there's obvious overlap between those two goals, but they're unique challenges that require different methods of preparation to excel in each of those areas. And so for me, that was pretty transformative, uh, understanding that difference between the fact that there are ways of practicing that maximize skill development, and then there are ways of practicing that are essential for the ability to demonstrate those skills, especially under pressure, when you only have one opportunity to play something or to perform a skill. And there are certainly a number of elements to that second challenge, whether it's building confidence and becoming more resilient and being able to manage nerves and, and so forth. But increasingly over time, the single skill that I think seems to be so essential for the ability to get into the zone and get into that state of flow that we've hopefully all experienced in some form or another in some area of our lives uh, is focus, the ability to know exactly what is most helpful to think about at any given point in time and to be able to stay completely immersed and engaged with just that thing or those things in the moment for as long as we need to. And that has been fun for me to explore with musicians because I think a lot of times for musicians, they've all had the experience of being in a state of flow and being in the zone, but it's often not clear to us how we got there and what we're doing when we're in that sort of state. Uh, it's usually because especially once we realize we're totally in the zone, once we realize we're in the zone, it, like we get shoved out of the zone and then it's hard to know how to get back there. Um, so being able to identify, yeah, what to stay focused on when you're in that moment is one of the key skills for cultivating more consistent performances under pressure. 
Yeah. So could you talk for a couple of minutes then to build on that theme of um, what is it that distinguishes in your eyes those who are truly the maestros, you know, the 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 virtuosos, you know, the the experts, you know, in, in their craft versus those who kind of like make it to a certain level, but don't necessarily perhaps, you know, get to the place where they're the, in a sense, like, you know, go to kind of violinists or other performers, or they you feel like they, they haven't lived up to their full potential? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. We could probably explore for quite a long time. I'm reminded, actually, because this surprised me, I was I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a, an NBA coach, a basketball coach, and he was talking about how there are a lot of players in the NBA. And, you know, it's a very small fraternity of individuals who get to play in the NBA. I don't remember the exact number. I'm sure someone in your audience knows exactly what number of players there are. It's maybe 500 something. But I was surprised to find out that there are a number of athletes in the league who are just incredibly talented and amazingly gifted athletes. So they're able to play at that level, even though they are not like these basketball nerds, like they are not incredibly engaged and wanting to do every possible thing they can to improve. Like they just happen to be so naturally athletically gifted that they can do pretty well in that league. And then there are, uh, you know, a good number of athletes, of course, basketball players who are these uh, basketball junkies, the coach called them, like they just eat, sleep, breathe basketball. And they may not necessarily be the best players on their team, but they they love it. And so they maximize their potential. They become great professionals. They, you know, stay in the league for many years sometimes. And then there are, you know, he called them professionals, people who, you know, they certainly love basketball enough to do their job, but they don't necessarily go above and beyond to maximize their absolute potential. And so that, I think, is reflected even in the music world. There are certainly musicians who are constantly trying to improve all the time. And then there are musicians who, you know, are doing well enough, but aren't necessarily wanting to eat, sleep and breathe music. And that's actually okay. I mean, I think it's fine for musicians to love and like what they do, but not necessarily have to be in it 24 um, seven. And then there are some who maybe never made the decision of do I really want to be a musician or not? And they just have found themselves in this place. And I think the the really magical ones are the ones who kind of eat, sleep, and breathe music or basketball, whatever we're talking about, and also have that natural ability or gifts or whatever it is that we want to talk about. And all these things kind of come together where, you know, I think folks like Michael Jordan, LeBron James, like they happen to have the drive and the talent and gifts and ability and all the other, like everything kind of comes together in a single package. And so, I mean, for me, that's one of the things that I realized and frustrated me early on that I might have, you know, enough or some amount of talent and natural ability, whatever that would be. But the desire to immerse myself in music and do all the things that I knew that I really ought to do if I wanted to get better, I just couldn't bring myself to do those things because they were other things that captured my interest. And I just, it, it just wasn't. The, the drive wasn't there to do those things. And right. so I was constantly frustrated at how I didn't sound as good as I ought to. I wasn't improving as fast as I felt like I should or could. And and so this is a weird place to be where you know what to do. You can't get yourself to do them. But it also is incredibly frustrating that you don't do these things because you're constantly not performing at the level that you know you ought to be or could. When you coach uh, music students and you're looking at that aspect of it, you know, the the motivational aspect, the discipline and the commitment aspect, um, are you observing it mostly in, in terms of like how much time are they putting in and regularity? 
or are you also seeking to sense what's their if you want to call it like emotional state you know are they are they engaging in it joyfully or they are they engaging in it with a certain amount of i don't know just lack of physical kind of you know feelings or just neutral to just like even frustration feelings is that emotional aspect uh, an important part of what you think will be ultimately making or breaking them i mean certainly when i see a musician who is geeking out a little bit about their craft that's really awesome to see because you know that that's going to to bring good things for them even if they end up not going into music at some point you know like myself in their mid 20s maybe they decide to pivot in some other area you know that they kind of grasp and understand the joy of learning how to get better at something i think maybe that's the thing that really stands out to me the most and resonates when i see people who geek out about their craft and seeing how to get better cuz it's really not and i'm sure people in your audience can re- relate to this as well it's really not about the time that we put in we do need to put in a lot of time but it's how we use that amount of time that also is a huge factor obviously in getting to where it is that we're trying to go and so for me for instance i i certainly put in a lot of time but most of that time was rather mindlessly spent in repetitions one after another with a lot of auto correcting of things that i instinctively just felt like i needed to do as opposed to really digging into the details and trying to understand what the underlying problems were and the underlying mechanics and the principles of playing better in tune with a better sound and understanding the musical structure and so forth and so so when i see students who love solving problems and identifying problems and honing their craft and they kind of geek out about that process i think that's exciting to observe because you know that that i mean that's the thing that's also universally generalizable beyond music so whether they become teachers or administrators in music and whatever it may be you know that that's going to enable them to to make an impact yeah let's examine another dimension of it which you brought up a few minutes ago so for now we're talking about geeking out as in going deep really getting like almost like in a positive way really obsessive about your craft and keeping on refining it right uh but you also mentioned that some of these folks like what you know coaches have observed in sports and then what you also observe in music they tend to have certain generous gifts and talent and then they're they're kind of in it but they're also interested and engaged with other aspects of life are you familiar with this book that came out recently called range no that's new i have to check it out i think you'll enjoy it it's it's got some great um if you want to call it like contrarian ideas in it that sort of pull us a little bit away from a craft that i know that you and i are both quite you know quite invested in which is this craft of deliberate practice right this this like 10000 hour kind of rule about like really in a dedicated way attentive way mindful way doing 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 what it takes to kind of you know sculpt the brain right to do what it needs to do for you um so this book takes the position also though of how important um it is you know for at least like certain paths and certain lives and certain careers to broaden our horizons and to zoom out and almost like have a multi path multidisciplinary kind of way through which we ultimately evolve and stumble into what it is that like you know will ultimately make us do our life's best work and um there's a piece of science that just comes to my mind which is interesting because i think we can we can do something with it here which is um that they've actually done research on like nobel prize winning scientists and what they find is that you know maybe you know this but like the people who win a nobel prize are more likely to also play a musical instrument than the scientists who have not won a nobel prize and it's a little bit counterintuitive right because you'd expect those who win a nobel prize even more dedicated to their craft even more mindful of every moment of time that they're spending like why waste it playing the piano right and then you have people like einstein who used to play the violin and i believe also the piano so um, do you see a little bit of that at all in in music 
And maybe, you know, it depends on perhaps the role you're playing in music. Like maybe for composers, it might be more important than for actual musicians who are part of like an orchestra. I don't know. I mean, the question thrown to you that um, among those that you see rise to like a really high level, that they tend to also go out of that frame from time to time and kind of like have one or two other things which are like very different from music that also gives them, you know, fulfillment? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the tricky thing is there are some folks who have really single-mindedly pursued music from a very young age and achieved an amazing amount of success. And then there are others who have also achieved a great amount of success, but didn't necessarily have that single-minded focus in a very narrow way from such an early age. And I think it's probably the case in many other fields as well. I'm reminded when you brought that up of the the literature on deliberate play, right? which is where they find athletes, for instance, who didn't specialize so early in life, but actually engaged in a lot of other athletic endeavors or uh, deliberate play being where, you know, you kind of go out and play with your friends and create your own games and your own structures and uh, you cultivate teamwork and athletic ability and and those sorts of things, but in not an organized sports setting, but in a setting with your friends that you've created things. What they found is that, you know, there are folks who single-mindedly focused on sport from an early age in the highest levels of athletic competition, and also people who did a lot more deliberate play in their younger years and didn't specialize so early, also competing at the highest level. And amongst those at the very highest level, they do seem to find oftentimes that it's the folks who cultivated more deliberate play in their life that do tend to be more creative strategy-wise. And so in a way, it seems almost like from those who are able to get to the highest level, those with some background in deliberate play or a more variety of experiences actually might be even better than the folks who single-mindedly focused, even though they're both excellent. So... I certainly find that, you know, looking back at musicians um, back in the day who uh, have done interviews and so forth do seem to be very thoughtful in areas outside of music as well. They just seem to be these really interesting, thoughtful folks that have multiple skills. I mean, I guess a modern day example of that is the pianist Stephen Huff, who's, you know, a, a gifted writer and, you know, he's published a couple of novels, I think, recently and considered a polymath and you know, incredibly interesting person to talk to just because the things that he's able to explore and think about and talk about go beyond the music. Yeah, it almost seems uh, from what you're saying that they tend to approach the discipline of music from, if you want to call it like a deeper place, you know, from a place where they're seeing it as some kind of, I don't know, connection between them and nature or them and the universe. So they're plumbing those deeper depths and they're seeing everything as a little bit more. It actually reminds me of a quote from Leonardo da Vinci. You know, he said like, here are my principles of creativity. And I forget like all of them, but there were three or the four that I think I remember. One was he said, study the art of science and then study the science of art and then approach everything in a way that makes you feel everything is connected with everything else. Something like that. I'm probably misphrasing the last one. But there's a little bit of that that I hear you talking about of those, you know, some of those musicians like this one uh, that you just quoted us. Yeah, really cool. So um, can we talk for a minute about the, so so one of the things that I, I really marvel at when I see great music, you know, being played out there is like, my heavens, these people are in a live and public place and everyone is attending to every little thing that they're doing. And if they like skip a beat, miss a note, you know, something, it's going to be very evident to people who are familiar with this music that something wrong happened here. And in that context, how do you keep that state of perfect grace, perfect alignment, 
perfect rendition of your craft, right? And not uh, give in to nerves, right? In, in a moment like that, especially when you're like at the Metropolitan Opera or something. So anyway, how how do people achieve that state of high performance that allows them to operate in high stakes situations, execute perfectly with grace? Yeah, that's that's the challenge I think that we all struggle with from the time that we're young and, and start having to perform on stage. I just want to say real quickly though, before we get to that, that I think one of the challenges sometimes for musicians and maybe other folks as well is that, but I think especially in music, if you don't put all of your energy and attention single-mindedly into the pursuit of becoming a better cellist or singer or clarinetist, I think in some circles you can be looked down upon, right? So there's this idea that, oh, you're not a serious musician if you're not obsessing about music 24-7. And I think sometimes that can be unfortunate because these might not be people who want to do that. If, if you are that person who wants to put all of your focus into, you know, geeking about your craft and being a musician, then that's awesome. That's what it is that's you. But if you're somebody who also has interests in architecture or writing or graphic design or, you know, real estate or whatever it may be, it's unfortunate when those musicians then get labeled as being less serious about their craft, even though they could be amazing, incredible musicians as well. And so I just wanted to, to say that because it's something that popped into my mind and I've had conversations about that with some musicians as well. I think it's, a great service, uh, it's a great service you're giving to, to all of us here because uh, what you're really saying is, you know, be yourself, you know, discover kind of what is right for you. And you never know, there might be a Noah-like path that you are meant to take, which may not fit exactly in the mold of what like the world is defined to be yeah, your typical LinkedIn profile, you know? So so thank you. Yeah, but to your question of how to avoid um, worrying on stage and how to avoid freaking out about all the things that could go wrong, that is a real challenge. And, and this takes us a little bit to one of the challenges, I think, is that the mindset that you need to adopt when you're practicing and developing your craft and your skill in the most effective way is actually quite different than the mental state that you need to be in when you're performing your skill. Uh, the artist's sister, Karita Kent, had this list of rules in her art studio. I believe one of them was something to the effect of um, how you know you should never try to create and analyze at the same time because they're opposing processes or different processes. And I think there's even you know research in neuroscience which seems to suggest that there is really something to that, that when we're creating effectively, it's a very different headspace than when we're analyzing or critiquing effectively. And so when you think about practice for a musician, when they're practicing effectively, they're not only executing and performing and playing, but they also have to self-monitor us as they have to listen very carefully to what's coming out of their instrument. And then they have to critique that, you know, not just in terms of was it good or bad, but, you know, was it pitch-wise? Was it sharp or flat? Was it too loud, too soft? Was the articulation more this than that? And all these little nuances and details they have to be able to analyze and critique. And then they need to figure out why those things happen. They need to problem solve on a more technical or mechanical level of what they're doing. And so the problem, of course, is if you start self-monitoring and critiquing and trying to problem solve when you're performing, you tend to choke or, or things tend to fall apart. You end up not playing in the way that you can. And so you have to essentially learn how to flip the switch from practice mode to performance mode on command when you need to under pressure and to, to be able to trust performance mode mentally in that headspace. There's actually a great podcast episode on the Freakonomics podcast a few months ago or maybe a year ago with the gymnast Sean Johnson who won a bunch of medals in 2008. And I'd never heard an athlete talk about it in these clear terms. It was, it was amazing to hear. 
where she said basically that in addition to choreographing the physical movements for every routine, which obviously you had to do until it was all in muscle memory, uh, she said it was also essential for her to create a mental script of thoughts. So basically choreograph the thoughts that she was going to engage in during the course of any given routine. So in a 90-second flow routine, she needed 90 seconds of scripted thoughts to engage in. So she couldn't at that same time sabotage her performance by worrying about getting hurt or worrying about messing up or worrying about the judges or the other competitors and so forth. And so it, it would look different for a musician than for a gymnast, for instance. And in certain sports where things aren't scripted, it would certainly be different still. But for a musician, yeah, knowing, oh, this is where I'm going to think about sound. This is where I'm going to think about the pulse. Or this is where I'm going to think about how I'm going to shape this phrase or the quality of sound that I'm going for on this particular note or how I want the vibrato to sound. Like knowing exactly what to keep your thoughts occupied with so that they can't wander and start exploring the stage or the hall, or the sounds that you're hearing backstage or worrying about a big shift coming up or worrying about memory or worrying about what the audience is thinking. Like that is one of the elements that does seem to facilitate flow and enable musicians to get into that place where they're not worrying about messing up and they're just creating this amazing music in the moments that we, that we live for on stage. That is so beautiful. Uh, there are so many, I think, really powerful insights in what you've just shared here. I'm sorting <laughs> right now. While we are here talking about music, you know, this is just a microcosm of what any or all of us achieve in and experience in in many spheres of our life, isn't it? And and so and and you drew from sports psychology as well. And so this is a conversation about high performance and anything that you're engaged in. You know, from from cooking the next meal to um, to again to being a good parent to to being manager or a good entrepreneur or you know the kind of worlds that I I kind of like live in. I think this is so applicable to to all of that. This notion of the practice mode versus the performance mode. You know, what a powerful idea to separate those two out to see the legitimacy and importance of both of those modes. You know, I, I don't know if this makes sense. You know, but I think like some people just like to stay in performance mode. You know, they don't put a lot of time into into the what has to happen backstage, isn't it? Uh, so, so actually giving, like paying homage to both of those. That example you gave of that gymnast uh, was amazing. The idea of actually training your thoughts, not just your muscle memory in the physical side, right? For, for, for high performance, scripting those thoughts. Incredible, incredible idea. Yeah, incredible idea. So thank you. These are, these are beautiful things. It also reminds me of a statement made by someone I have deep admiration for who said that when you have to give a talk, so it's about public speaking, prepare it write it down, rehearse it, then tear up your notes and go up and speak from the heart. And now that I think about it, what you told me is that that's the performance mode, you know, and that was the practice mode, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a, another element to this, which um, came to my mind as you were talking, which is that I think this idea of like the critical mode where you're stepping back and taking a critical look at what's working, what's not working and how's it working and all of that versus the immersive mode where you're kind of like in the experience in a state of flow. I, I don't know what you think about this, Noah, but I, I feel like that applies as much to being a good audience as to being a good performer. Thoughts? I think it's easy for musicians in the audience to sometimes get stuck in the critique mode, right? Because it's, it's almost like you're, well, I shouldn't speak for all musicians because this was just my experience, uh, but it was hard for me to not like kind of still be thinking about you know oh did this sound good or did this sound bad uh, at least in my estimation right it's like oh that's an interesting fingering maybe i should try that or oh why would they do that up bow instead of down bow or it's like oh that was you know a little bit flat or it's a little bit crunchy or it seems like they're rushing here right it's very easy to get into that critical mode but i certainly know musicians who are 
you know, at the very top of the of the classical world who are also able to enjoy listening to music. So when they're listening to a colleague play or they're in the audience listening to a different um, orchestra or, or ensemble, they're able to just sit back and enjoy it, which which I'm glad to hear because I think if, if musicians couldn't enjoy other musicians playing music, then that would be a really difficult sort of field to, to live in, I think. But yeah, so it, it's probably just my experience because I was still studying at the time all throughout. And so every opportunity to listen to a performance was another opportunity to kind of study the craft as opposed to just sit back and enjoy it yeah so um you know as we get into our own like high stakes like high pressure highly visible public like moments in music or beyond is there one one kind of like tip that you can give us as to something that you've learned that you know the best musicians kind of like do as a discipline that could be practical for us to use as well yeah absolutely it's it's what i'm about to say is going to be very logical it's going to make perfect sense it's going to be very simple, but it's not going to be easy and no one's going to want to do it. <laughs> so having said that, essentially, the thing that I kind of marvel at and don't know why I didn't kind of see much earlier in my own training was the importance of practice performances. So I'm sure other people have talked about this as well. I think Steve Jobs has even you know written about it, perhaps, or it's been written about Steve Jobs in terms of presenting. But um, musicians tend to not enjoy recording themselves uh, because it means we have to listen back we have to hear how things actually sounded and it's a lot more fun a lot of times to just kind of play and and have a good time and and hope that it went well and not have to kind of face the the truth of things and so uh, i'll give you a couple specific examples of musicians who have put some numbers to this. So David Kim is the concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And he's, of course, an amazing musician and can play pretty much anything, anytime. But when he's going to give a performance of a concerto with an orchestra, maybe he hasn't played the concerto for a little while, he will do 30 or 40 practice performances of that concerto for smaller audiences in advance. So he'll go to a retirement center or a library, wherever he can get to, take a pianist, and he'll perform the concerto, the whole thing, uh, no matter how long it is, 30, 40, however many minutes, live for a sample audience. And then after 30 or 40, the, 30 or 40 of those, then he'll go and perform it um, with the orchestra. Uh, that's a pretty big commitment of time and energy. And it's not something that a lot of people want to do. But if someone like David Kim feels like it takes him not two or five, but 30 or 40 of those to really feel comfortable and being able to do his thing on stage, I think it's fair for us to feel uncomfortable still after five or 10 practice presentations and we still don't feel comfortable doing it. Might just be that we need another 10 or 20 of them. Another example is a percussionist at the Met Opera. Um, Rob Knopper is his name. Uh, Orchestral musicians know that the orchestral audition experience is very different than any other performance experience. It's before a screen, anonymous, you walk in there, it's very artificial, it's very cold, very dry. Uh, it's sort of like the difference between you know taking a standardized test and actually performing the skills that are tested on that standardized test in real life. Well, I guess it's like taking uh, the MCATs versus you know being a doctor or something like that. It's very different things. But so that's what the orchestral audition is. And so he wanted to be more comfortable being uncomfortable in that situation he knew he was going to have to go into. So instead of just doing a handful of practice mock auditions, he did 42 mock auditions. He did one a day for six straight weeks. And a lot of these were double mock auditions. So we'd do a mock audition, get feedback, and he'd 
do a whole nother randomized uh, selection from his list of excerpts. And that's not comfortable, but you know, he did 42 of them. Even before he did those, he spent months recording himself first thing in the day. You know, usually the way musicians like to do things because we sound better is to warm up, to practice, and then record at the end of the day when we've kind of worked everything up and we feel good about it. He did the opposite because he figured, yeah, that's not what happens on audition day. He would warm up, he'd record himself first, and then he'd practice. And so things like that, basically centering our practice around the demands of performance, as opposed to focusing our time around just finding ways of sounding better right now, even though that may not translate on stage, is probably one of the more valuable things that we could all do in various aspects of life. But it, it's it's tough on the ego. So it's easy to to push that off. Very powerful. Very powerful. It's reminding me of um, reminding me of an experience that we've gone through in my institute here at Mentora. You know, as we've been doing uh, training and you know workshops and, and keynotes and things. And over time you've had the privilege of having me work with a more talented team of faculty beyond my own self. And I remember early on, uh, we were seeking to train, uh, you know, one or two of them to be ready for prime time to go and do a workshop. And, um, you know, I, I would I would ask them to kind of like test their knowledge with me so that I could just make sure that they had it down pat, right? Of course, they would bring in their own great ideas too, but, but there was a certain science to it and a certain method to what we were training on on leadership. And we started to notice an inconsistency between how I would rate them, you know, pretty high, but then you know, sometimes they would actually not land well, you know, with the audience. And it was very puzzling until I kind of like discovered what you were talking about, which is like in the practice, I need to actually simulate the conditions they're going to face there of high pressure, of challenging questions, of unexpected pivots in terms of time and what the technology is, you know, doing or not doing in that day. And if they can't hold themselves, you know, together in moments like that, then, then they're not ready yet. They may have the knowledge theoretically in the head. So we started to create more of a high pressure cauldron, you know, in the way we would actually assess and credentialize, you know, somebody to be ready for that prime time moment. And that meant to your point that they had to do many rounds of practice before they ever felt that they were ready, even though they might have conceptually known something. So it's just bringing back to that idea, which is, uh, which is beautiful, such, an, such a powerful insight to offer. And you said like, you have to put your ego aside and you have to be open to taking on that, I guess that space, which is beyond your comfort zone for a while in a voluntary way. Yeah, I mean, the idea really with like Rob's recording himself first instead of last is he wanted to expose the most realistic level of playing that was likely to happen on audition day. Or, or another way of looking at it is you want to try to expose the worst possible playing that's likely to happen so you can improve your uh, the floor of your playing, raise the floor of your playing as much as possible. Obviously, you're also trying to raise the ceiling, but if your ceiling's high and your floor is really low, that's a risky situation to be walking into. So if you know you have a really high floor, it makes it a lot easier to not be freaking out and worried. Beautiful. What a great idea and what a great concept itself, the floor versus the, you know, the floor versus the ceiling, right? And, and, and uh, being aware of both aspects you know, and how they play into your ultimate performance. Thank you for offering that. Uh, I just want to take a couple of comments from our audience, which I think are thought provoking. And I mean, they all are, but uh, just a couple of things I want to kind of like have you also react to. Uh, Sandy saying something really thoughtfully about how this performer versus, you know, performance concept, you know, in her own experience as a musician also, it created, you know, really a lot of difficulty in her in enjoying performance of others. And uh, it took years for her to let go of that. You were talking a little bit about that, what you've seen with certain musicians as well. Thank you, Sandy, for sharing that. Alonso is asking, um, you know, or just proposing a certain idea. I think there is a state in performance where something else, something deeply creative, 
shows up in a non-intentional way. It's sort of like a some kind of like a higher power that you know kind of like gets inspired inside you. Is that an idea that you relate to? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's one of the fun things about being in the zone, like where you trust the the mechanics of your playing so much that you just kind of are a little bit more spontaneous and freely improvisational in the moment and you trust that that's going to work out okay and you actually it's not even that you trust that it's going to work out okay in that moment you you are convinced that it's going to work out and you know it's going to be fine and things often are in that sort of moment and it is something i think you can cultivate a little bit even uh, we don't need to get into it too much here but there's a type of practice known as variable practice because our tendency is to you know figure out what we want to do and just be kind of rigid about just doing it that one way but in fact uh, there's a, a viola teacher at juilliard named toby apple who says he doesn't practice what he's going to do on stage at this point so much as he practices all the things that he might do on stage right so different tiny subtle nuanced variations of the ideal that he has just to make sure that it's all in his range, right? He has a, a bigger palette of ideas to pull from no matter what happens with his colleagues in the moment. And so that kind of practice, again, is, is something that has to be done well in advance, but it can be something that prepares you to, to have a more free performance experience where you trust yourself to take those little tiny risks because you've practiced those risks well in advance. Interesting. Is that sort of like um, what we might in business call like a what if, uh, you know, kind of like stress test where you have a certain project or a certain idea or a certain product or a certain what have you, and then you're anticipating certain scenarios and then you're kind of making sure that what you're building will thrive well under all those scenarios? It probably is very similar to that. Yeah. I mean, it can be quite subtle from like an extra wiggle vibrato here and there to something that you know your colleagues wouldn't even notice that you did differently, all the way to relatively overt nuances, playing things much faster, much slower, much louder or softer in very different ways. I see, um, I see. Yeah. Actually, now I'm understanding it better. It's a complementary, but perhaps a little bit different from what, what I was, I think what I was talking about was more when you are trying to prepare yourself for certain unexpected and uncontrolled shifts in the environment. Let's say the acoustics in the room or you know the piano is not working exactly the way it was meant to something of like that. But I think what you're referring to is actually interesting. It's like, if the inspiration comes to me to do this or do that, you know, am I able to do that in a way which is very harmonious or effective, mm -hmm. right, in the larger flow? That's, that's beautiful. That's an interesting idea. I haven't really thought about it. But I, I can, yeah, I, I want to reflect more on that in terms of the application of that and other professions as well. Beautiful thought. Great. We have a precious few minutes to go in what has been an hour that has just breezed by. The part that we didn't get a lot of time to talk about is um, maybe something that you could you could weigh in on for a couple of minutes, which is when we dedicatedly then practice something, what have you found to be the difference between somebody who's gaining a lot from that hour of time that's spent practicing versus somebody who went through the motions, but um, perhaps at the end of the day is not going to achieve the same growth? That's the one thing that I wish I could go back in my life and, and change, because I spent most of my life practicing quite mindlessly through lots of repetitions and auto-correcting my skills. And the problem is that it works. Like you can kind of intuit your way to a higher level of playing, but it's very frustrating, very inefficient. You hit a ceiling and, and so forth. So I think for me anyway, the key is, it's actually something my advisor often said in grad school. He said, you know, when you misdiagnose the problem, you're probably going to misdiagnose the solution as well. And I think for me anyway, looking back at how I practiced, I didn't spend a lot of time trying to identify what the mechanical cause of the problems that I was experiencing were. So just as a simple example, if something was out of tune, I just knew it was out of tune. I didn't bother to figure out, is it you know, sharp? Is it flat? Is it a lot sharp? Is it a lot flat? Which exact note is out of tune and why? Let's say that it's flat. Well, why exactly 
is that note flat consistently? Is it because of something my thumb's doing? Is it because of my elbow? Is it the angle of the violin? Is it tension in my chin and shoulder? Like what is actually causing me to come up short on that particular note? And so once I started thinking more in terms of what exactly is the problem? So that one of my advisor's favorite questions to us was, what's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? Like what he just wanted us to identify and articulate exactly what is stopping us or stopping this client from achieving a particular outcome. And so once we're able to identify the problem, so for me, with this note that's out of tune, if it's, okay, my, my thumb is getting a little bit tight, I'm not lifting up enough and releasing my shoulder and my chin at that moment, I'm not preparing my elbow in advance and the hand frame of my hand is a little bit too vertical instead of around. Once I adjust all those factors, oh, now it's in tune. Once I started practicing that way, identifying the problem and then identifying solutions, things started progressing in a much more rapid way. And also the solutions stuck. So it's not like, oh, I kind of intuited my way on the fifth repetition, how to play this in tune. But the next day it's back to square one again, because I didn't actually identify the problem. I didn't identify a solution. So my body is still doing the same old thing that it's accustomed to doing. But yeah, so once I identified how to kind of problem and solution my way to a better level of playing things were more stable. I trusted things better under pressure. Progress was remarkably different. Um, and I also just felt better. I knew that I was getting things done because I knew that I was coming to a, a deeper understanding of how to play the way I wanted to in a consistent way. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. So the idea of mindless versus mindful engagement with the, with the practice and the mindfulness leading you to looking at root causes and analyzing and then correcting and adjusting rather than keep repeating. Yeah, beautiful. We're, we're getting to the end of the hour. I, I want to highlight Pratik's comment. He, he made this comment a while back in chat where he talked about the Japanese concept of uh, ikigai, you know, this uh, approach to living where you find a confluence. Because I just think that you are just a great example of that, right? There's this confluence between what you love doing, what you're good at doing, what the world needs, and what, you know, you can get paid for enough to kind of make a living out of it. And it just seems to me like you you found that sweet spot between these four circles of the Venn diagram. And it's it's a beautiful quest that you're on. I also want to take a moment here just to kind of thank somebody who's not in the room here with us, but you shared a moment in your conversation with her that may be partly responsible for getting us together today, which is uh, you mentioned your girlfriend at that time and your wife now that uh, when you brought up this like stirring within that you felt like I, I've spent 20 years in music, but maybe, I don't know. Something like that, I guess you said, and she said, maybe, yeah, maybe you're not meant to be just playing music. I thought that was incredibly powerful as conversation between you and her. Yeah, I actually kind of made it like a throwaway part of the conversation, but it's actually, it, it, was, an important, it was an important part of that process. I mean, certainly having a conversation with my parents was important, but even before I got to having a conversation with my parents, um, I think, you know, my girlfriend and I had been together since college, we met when I was 19. And so we kind of grew up together a little bit. And this conversation between she and I happened when I was in grad school. So it was probably maybe four years into our relationship or so. And so, so we hadn't talked about marriage or anything like that, but I knew she was an important part of my life. And so I think that was actually a, a, an incredibly pivotal moment, just having this conversation with somebody who I knew cared about me and who I cared about. And for her to say that basically she gave me permission you know, to explore what my life might look like away from the violin or away from music. I don't, I don't know what would have happened were it not for that, that, I mean, not that, I mean, because basically what she did is she gave me permission to entertain other aspects of who I might be. 
Um, and she said, yeah, you know, it's going to be fine. Like, we'll be okay, is something along the lines of what she said. And so, so yeah, I'm eternally grateful that she was there and was able to say the thing that enabled me to then have the courage to talk to my parents and explore these other paths. Because I knew that no matter how it turned out, she'd be there, we'd be okay, we'd figure something out. So yeah, I mean, so it actually was a really important part of that process. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, you just shed so much more additional beautiful light, beautiful light on that moment. And uh, makes me just feel a lot of gratitude for people who sometimes are not as visible in uh, the role they're playing in the success of others, right? And in the paths of others, but who have been incredibly important and formative in, in getting us there. And certainly seems like she was one of them and also sounds like other members of your family, like your parents also. Yeah, because if, if they didn't say go for it in as many words, that would have been a whole other challenge as well. Yeah, amazing. So beautiful, Noah. I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Um, we will announce uh, our, our next guest soon. But for now, let us savor this very special moment as we bring our discussion to Noah with closure. I know I'd like you to have the final word. So could you just like share something that... Um, you dream about that you feel really you know aspirational about wanting to yeah, pursue in the course of the rest of your what has already been such a storied life well i don't know if this is aspirational or inspirational or anything but just maybe observational the thing that i've found myself gravitating towards especially in the last six months maybe is rather than me being the the person that exposes young musicians or musicians in general to sports psychology performance psychology and understanding how to experience performing as a more positive thing i've become more interested in working with teachers uh, i think teaching has always resonated with me even if when i was a kid i never would have thought that i'd want to become a teacher so i've been doing more work with teachers and trying to empower and enable teachers to work with students on performing optimally under pressure and feeling more confident on stage and discovering that they have the ability to actually enjoy performing for other people from an earlier age. And I think that to me feels really meaningful because then instead of me having to wait until they become grad students at Juilliard to help them have this experience, they are going out into the world having these experiences on their own. And Hopefully when they get to Juilliard and take my class, it's like, oh, I didn't learn anything from you. Like, this is stuff I've been doing for five, 10 years already. Like, why don't you have anything new for me? So that's sort of what I'm, I'm hopeful about. And I'm so glad I asked that question because that is uh, such a beautiful, such a beautiful dream, such a beautiful quest to have. Thank you, Noah, for what you are bringing to the world, bringing to your profession, but even beyond, bringing to all of us as an awareness and a spirit about how there's so much more to what we do than meets the eye. And if we have the patience and the determination and the vision to dive deeper and persist, that um, we can just like hone our craft in so many more, more powerful ways. You're demystifying, right? The science of mastery uh, in so many beautiful ways. Wishing you all the best in, in, in your journey. Uh, I know I'm, of course, looking forward very much to staying in touch, folks. Um, Let's do a big round of thank you and applause for uh, for Noah. I wish I could hear all of you. We could hear all of you. I wish we could be here in a live audience together. Thank you so much and and, and all the best. <laughs>